Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Hey, green future growers. Join me on the Listen app. Invite code GREEN, G-R-E-E-N. I would love if you left me a message. You can reach out to other green future growers and other Green Organic Gardener podcast listeners there. We could have a conversation about what's growing in your garden. What are you eating? Does it not feel good to walk by the produce aisle? It does for me. Um, And if you're not there yet, we'd be happy to help you get there. Over on the Listen app, invite code Green, G-R-E-E-N. Hey, everyone. So I just want to remind you that this is the most important time to be taking good notes on what's working well, what's not working well, what don't you want to forget come next February and March when it's time to order supplies or do your design. You know, what are your favorite seeds or what do you want to plant more of? Do you want more broccoli? Like you might think I am never going to forget this, but you probably are going to forget it. And um, a great way to support the Green Organic Gardener podcast um, would be to get our garden journal that's got a beautiful butterfly that I took a picture of on our lilac. So it's like a little part of our home and your home. It's got blank pages and line pages, and um, it would really support us a lot. Um, So, But most of all, we want you to have good records. Welcome to the Green Organic Gardener podcast. It is Saturday, July 18th, 2020, and I have an amazing guest on the line. You have to check out their website. It is so beautiful and just full of lots of great stuff. And here to share with us today from BLH Farm is Matt Arthur. So welcome to the show, Matt. Hi, Jackie. And we'll tell, I mean, I want to ask you about yourself, but I really want to know what BLH stands for. Yeah, so it stands for Boone's Lick Heritage Farm. I grew up in central Missouri on a family farm that still had the wagon ruts from Daniel Boone's trail west from Missouri through to uh, the southwest. So I grew up playing on a creek and in the field with uh, those wagon trails still visible. So when we started our flower farm uh, on some of our land that wasn't being used for row crops, I wanted to let everybody know that this is, you know, just a real part of our, our history here is seeing these, um, this trail and thinking about people who came before us. So how, so this is your family farm. So, you know, I guess if you said you listen to my podcast that my first question is always about like, what was your first gardening experience? Like, what'd you grow? Who were you with? I guess you were probably with your mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. With my mom mainly, uh, we always had an orchard and a garden and, always had tomatoes and beans and apples and you know, a bunch of other stuff going. So I just have always grown flowers and vegetables at the house. Um, and my mom grew a lot of things that her mom grew. And so I just always look back and think about growing, you know, the flowers that she got from her mom or apples that she was trying out and um, I've always done it. And is that how you learned how to grow organically? Were they organic too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my parents for our vegetable garden and, and orchard have, have always been hundred percent chemical free, hundred percent organic, always heavy mulchers, never, never spray for anything. And I always grew up just knowing that that was how, how one should farm and garden. 
Well, awesome. So do you have any tips? Like I was just going through all the questions I've been asked in the Facebook group and somebody was asking about what do I do about apple scab and just like any tips for growing an orchard? Like our orchard, the other problem we're having is the grass is full of this weird bindweed, which is totally irrelevant. Bindweed's tough. Yeah. Bindweed is tough. I mean, I have two quick pieces of advice. The first is that the, in the rows between your apple trees, you need to have a mix of species that you choose. Uh, you should have a grass, you should have a legume and then a forb uh, to take the place of, of those weeds. Weeds really are telling you that there's something missing in your species mix, that they're filling a niche that should be filled by something that you consider beneficial. So trying to keep a pure grass row in your orchard is going to be really hard. But if you can toss down just a, a three or four species mix, you know, comfrey or clover and grass and maybe oats in the spring, uh, tailor it for your area, get a few things in there to, to keep the space busy so that things like bindweed can't get a foothold. Um, we also would say for scab, you know, apples, apples have a lot of blemishes on them and they still taste great. So comparing apples you grow at your house in appearance to what you could get in a grocery store is the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, focus on the taste and the, the texture and how fresh they are and just, you know, try to scrub off some of the, the scab and the, the mold that gets on them. Wow. All right. Now, what did you say? Oh, I knew I should have wrote it down. A grass, a legume, and a what? A forb, F-O-R-B. Forbs are other pasture plants that aren't either grasses or legumes. And, you know, you think of of kind of a traditional wild grassland. There's not just a couple of things there. There's a few things there. And forbs are a category that basically are everything that's not a grass or a legume that's not a weed. So just try to find a, a couple few things that you can put into those paths that you can Obviously, you can mow down and also are perennial, so you're not putting them in every year. Um, and that'll hopefully keep the, the nasties out of the way. Awesome. Well, so Patty Armister came and visited, and she told me to get some comfrey. And I got some comfrey, so it's going to be slow taking off, but hopefully by next year. And then we have a lot of clover. We're trying to get clover to grow in, but um, and, uh, uh, we'll have to look for that other stuff. So, well, tell us about something that did grow well this year. What's growing? I'm ex- also excited to hear about your flowers. Yeah, something that grew well. Well, we've been just loving some of the ornamental alliums. We, we try to do as many perennials as we can on the flower farm. We, we really like having these little perennial ecosystems where we have maybe a, a tall early perennial, and then we'll put some annuals into that row, and then have maybe a third low-growing late perennial or a perennial herb that we use as filler. So very excited about some of the, the alliums, these ornamentals with uh, maybe three or four inch purple heads, really like those. And been very excited about uh, seeing sage really establish itself and, and use as a filler, ornamental aromatic filler that's a perennial plant that grows really well here in Missouri. So those two things are highlights for us. I love growing sage. My sage is blooming right now and it's so pretty. Oh, it's so nice. I love all this. Tell us like, how did you get started in the flower? Oh, well, I guess you did kind of tell us your mom always grew flowers. 
like I don't know I guess I just want to hear a little more about your flower business because somebody asked me way back in the beginning like I want to hear more stories about flower farmers yeah so my wife and I met outside Missouri I'd left Missouri to go to school and we lived away from Missouri for a long time and I I really wanted to get back and I wanted to farm and we're looking at at ways to get back into agriculture and uh, row crop agriculture is really, really neat, but it's also a huge capital investment to start. And um, my family doesn't have the thousands of acres that you need to be profitable in this particular commodity market. And it's also, you know, maybe not the type of agriculture I was really excited about. And we were, you know, just drawing up different farm plans for in a winter and going over again and again. And they always included some flowers because we both always loved growing flowers and our parents have always grown a flower garden. And the more we ran through the species selection and the marketing mix and thought about what we would be excited about growing that, that might actually be profitable, flowers took an ever larger piece of that. And now we're doing almost all flowers with some vegetables that are really just for us. Um, we really enjoy having a mixture of species in all of our beds and vegetables and flowers do super well together. Both do much better together than they would individually. And so we now have settled on, on flowers and we have about a half acre of beds uh, and then an apiary. And uh, along with that, we, we have a composting business where we provide composting supplies and we do make a lot of compost that we use on the farm for our soil fertility. What kind of composting supplies? So we, we sell Bakashi kits and we sell worms and worm towers. Um, Bakashi, I, I'm not sure how uh, familiar you are with it. It's a method of indoor composting that came out of East Asia. It came from Japan and Korea. It's a traditional method of composting um, agricultural surplus anaerobically so no no air and unlike unlike hot piles where you you know you're taking a green nitrogen heavy food waste and you're taking a brown carbon heavy um, addition adding water and then mixing hand turning or turning with a with a machine for you know weeks or months until it forms that black crumbly beautiful hummus um, bakashi is anaerobic so there's no air at all it's done in a closed container and you inoculate the food waste with these effective microbes, some soil microbes that are really good at tearing through food in, a, in an airless environment. And we just really love it. We used to make about a thousand pounds of aerobic compost a week, or probably a little bit more with the wood chips added. And we now make about a thousand pounds of bakashi a week in sealed containers. And it's just, it's just super. So, but do you like out of like your food scraps or what are you putting in there that you're giving a thousand pounds a week? Are you getting yeah, stuff so from other places? We like are. Yeah. So when we started, when we thought about how to get our soil healthy enough to grow, you know, beautiful flowers and herbs, we realized that we would need a pretty good source of, of compost. And so we started a small business that collects residential food waste from houses in the St. Louis area. And then we take the residential food waste and we make compost from that or we feed it to our worms. Um, and we've been doing that for maybe two and a half years now. And this spring we started making and selling 
like home Bakashi kits because the more Bakashi we, we made, the more we thought this is really a, a super method of making organic matter available to the soil microbes. But we would just start talking to people about it and people were obviously unfamiliar and, and it's, um, yeah, so we do that now. Well, you know, I love that. Uh, so how about, is there something you guys are excited to do different either next year that you're trying this summer? I mean, we're like right smack in the middle of July, so. Yeah, the big year. push big push on our farm <laughs> is to, to get more things in the ground in September. Uh, we, our first frost date here is mid to late October. So I don't know where that is for, for you. It's probably coming up pretty quick, but we still have some time before frost hits. And our goal is to get, as many even hardy annuals in the ground in the fall and then put them under a permeable cover like an agribond row cover so they can overwinter in the soil and then when spring comes they'll be established and ready to go so we're trying to put a lot more hardy annuals in in the fall than we did last year so that means like right now you're planting seeds in yeah, containers like right. that you're going to put in the ground this is so exciting yeah what we, kind we're big, and what's yeah. hardy annuals so like, like snapdragons larkspurs um, lavenders uh, perennial we'll put some of that in too oh. but uh, we use soil blocks so we don't use uh, you know plastic seed trays we make everything in three quarter inch or two inch soil blocks so we'll start you know thousands and, and thousands of these little soil blocks under lights or out, you know, outside under a shade cloth until they're three or four inches tall and then transplant them, hopefully starting in five or six weeks so they can get established and rooted uh, as the weather starts to cool. And then all of those snapdragons and larkspur and, you know, perennials like echinacea and lavender and arnica and, you know, on and on will we'll have a chance to, to be like the dominant plant in that bed in the fall. So when spring comes, they'll be already taller and more robust than the weeds that might be in the soil. So that come April, when it's really thawing and warm, they have a huge jump on competitors and we don't have to worry about, you know, either hand weeding a lot of stuff or, you know, trying to prepare that soil surface when it's cold and rainy and snowy, maybe that they'll be already growing quite well. And then when the last frost date hits, we just take off the the row cover for the last time and then they are already hopefully fairly tall and robust and we get a few weeks or a month early for cuttings. How did you come up with this plant? Did you guys just make it up yourselves? Or are you following? Oh, no. Like no, is no, this what following. Aaron yeah. does? Or this no, is awesome. Yeah, Lisa Ziegler out of Virginia who wrote yeah. the book Cool Flowers and Flowers Love Vegetables. Yes. She's a huge proponent of this and, and the first person that I'd heard um, really talk in detail about how effective it could be. She's a, a big uh, flower grower, obviously, and, and I see her at, at the flower conferences, and I thought, this is absolutely the way to go, right? I mean, it's everything we love. It's, it's, it's um, reduction of, of weed pressure. It's, you know, kind of early season blooms, you know, and, and, and it just really works. Well. She makes soil blocks, too, so it really works well for our system, and, and we're, we did last year, and we're going to do a lot more this year because it's, it's great. Awesome. I finally got soil blocks at the, um, they had this free the seeds workshop and there was like this tool swap and I couldn't believe they were there. And I saw, I traded a book 
for them. I was so excited, but we didn't actually try them this year because I don't know, Mike didn't do a lot of starts. And I think the ones that he did, he already had in the ground before I brought those home or not in the ground, but like in the plastic, but we're definitely going to try that next year. I love Lisa Ziegler. She was my episode number two. And then she came back and then we were supposed to speak after her third book, the one flowers love vegetables. And we've never connected since then, but yeah. Awesome. Well, good for you for putting all of this into practice because like I still go out, like she told me, she's like, well, go out in the spring and take pictures of, of what is coming up naturally in the spring. And then that's what you want to plant in the fall. And I still take those pictures, but I haven't like taken it to heart. Like you have, this is so amazing. So tell us about something that didn't work so well. What didn't go the way you thought it was going to? Well, we, we, we had planned to do a lot of direct seeded sunflowers. So a, a real deviation from our soil block routine. And so I had a, a nice, a nice set of beds and direct seeded, oh, you know, a, a pretty good batch of sunflowers. And I mean, between birds and, and, you know, field mice, we probably had like a 3% survival on those. It was just, it was just so eye opening. I mean, because we transplant almost everything when they're really past past the time that birds want them. I just was not clued into how much pressure birds can provide on these on the seeds and seedlings. And it was it was just astonishing failure. I mean you, you have a, a, a row, you know, 150 foot row that has like four sunflowers in it. It was really terrible. <laughs> Aww. Do you think that hap- will happen like every year or was that just this year because like all the animals are like in these stages of doing all sorts of weird things with like no airplanes in the air and stuff. Well, part of it is that we have done a really good job of attracting birds to the garden for insect control. So there are just a lot of birds around all the time. And so we've, we've done that to ourselves, but also I went back in a week later, try to get it. And this time I did what I should have done, which was take a, again, Agrabon row cover and, and, lay it directly on the seeds on the soil surface and then wet it. And then when the seeds emerged, you know, a couple of days later, then I put it on wire a few inches above them and kept them covered from, from predation until they were a few inches tall and then pulled the row cover off. So I learned I absolutely can direct seed, but I have to provide some protection for those, for those seeds when I do it. Man, and you are just dropping golden seeds one after the other here. I'm sure listeners are getting all sorts of great ideas and tips. And Lisa Ziegler actually was the one that got me to buy the Agrabon. What I loved about her was she came on and told me exactly what, and somewhere I'll post in the show notes, like she told me what to get. And she was like, Jackie, if you don't get some, I'm going to send you some. And we have, like, I was so surprised at how long it has lasted and how well. And then this year, I even finally like put a garbage can down in the... Um, garden to keep it like a really clean one to keep it in so it's not getting rained on when we're not using it because especially in the beginning of the season we were like having to you know cover the things at night and take it off and cover them at night and um, yeah you can use that stuff for everything and it is so effective. I'll tell you Um, what else we use it for so after it gets after it gets torn up in the field that's how we ship compost and worms around the country we take Agrabond and make make bags out of it. It's permeable, worms can breathe, it lets air in, a little bit of water. So that's how we ship all of our composting worms too, is in, you know, custom sewn Agrabond bags. So it's an incredible material. Can you actually ship your worms all over the country? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
And what kind of warrant? Are they like the red wigglers or are they, they are. like? Yep. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, I love all this. I'm so glad you found me. Now let's get to the root of things. You can find uh, Deer Fence Supplies on DeerBusters.com. We're located in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. We ship nationwide for free. And if you want 10% off, type in the word fences, F-E-N-C-E-S, at checkout on DeerBusters.com and save yourself some money while you're getting Deer Fence. Hey, Green Future Growers. Join me on the Listen app. Invite code GREEN, G-R-E-E-N. I would love if you left me a message. You can reach out to other green future growers and other Green Organic Gardener podcast listeners there. We could have a conversation about what's growing in your garden. What are you eating? Does it not feel good to walk by the produce aisle? It does for me. Um, And if you're not there yet, we'd be happy to help you get there. Over on the Listen app, invite code Green, G-R-E-E-N. And now let's get to the root of things. Oh my gosh. Well, we're already at getting to the root of things. So do you have a least favorite activity that you're going to kind of force yourself to get out there and do? Yeah, I really don't enjoy pinching plants. You know, it's, it's a lot of the flowers we grow, they do benefit from pinching to get multiple stems or to get smaller stems like dahlias if you let a dahlia grow the central stem will be like a two inch thick stalk and it's really hard to put in a vase so you know pinching cutting cutting at that growth point is is pretty key and i just don't love doing it you know it's so hard for me to go down and just nip off all of these growing plants so that's my that's absolutely my least favorite activity all right well on the flip side and i can totally relate to that it's taken me a long time to embrace that it was one of the videos that i watched that aaron benzenkian put in that finally got me like where i was comfortable with it um what's your favorite activity to do in the garden you know i love transplanting i think transplanting it's it's such a great time um i don't mind weeding at all it's fun to see you know, each time you weed, the plants are a little bit more competitive. So those, I, those two things are always really, really enjoyable. I love transplanting too, because it's like instant garden. Like all of a sudden you have this bed and it's full of flowers and then it's growing. And I think that's just the best. Uh, whereas like Mike's seeds out in the mini farm, I'm like, how do you have the patience to wait for these things to germinate yeah, for, and come yeah. up and, oh my gosh, you have so much patience. Yeah. I think he also has a lot of vision too. Like when he, he can see it better than I can or something. I don't know. Anyway, what's the best garden advice you've ever received, Matt? Heavy mulching. Yeah. Heavy, heavy mulching is the answer almost everything here, at least here in Missouri. Heavy mulching is the answer for getting too hot and dry, you know, keeps water in. It's the answer for soil health. It provides a long-term source of carbon for soil microbes and worms, you know, keeps, keeps weeds down. I mean, our, we heavily mulch every bed every year all the time. And we just use, you know, thousands of pounds of, of, of hay on it. And it's, it's been great for us. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Where do you get your hay? From our, from our, our farm. Yeah. We, we've, uh, the garden is in uh, hay. We took part of a hay field for our garden. And so after we do the early hay, we reserve, you know, maybe 6,000 pounds of, of bales <clears throat> just right by the garden. And then we use them throughout the year. Wow. That's fancy. Uh, 
How about a favorite tool you like to use? If you had to move and can only take one tool with you, what should you not live without? Yeah, it's a tough question. I, I, it's a tie between soil block maker, which is key, but I, my new favorite hand tool is a dedicated weeder. It's a, like a very, very narrow, long, dull tip trowel from Homestead Iron, which is a, a manufacturer, it's a blacksmith in the Ozarks, south of us, maybe two hours. And they make just the most incredible steel hand-forged tools that, the reason I like it, it's maybe an inch wide. And so I can transplant with it. And it's also the only thing that can get some of the perennial roots out here. It's incredibly strong. It's, um, it's one piece of steel from the tip all the way through the handle. So you don't, I've never even come close to bending it, much less breaking it. I've gone through a lot of travels in, in my gardening past and Homestead Iron, I think is, is just irreplaceable. So that's, I would take their, their weeder with me. Cool. I'll have to look into those. Um, and what size soil blocker do you use? Like we, cause we ended up getting a set of three. So we have like a giant one and medium size and then the itty bitty teeny tiny ones. Yeah. Uh, probably 98% or the three quarter inch, the teeny tiny ones. I can do 160 uh, individual blocks on a green cafeteria tray. And those are a pretty cheap commodity. So I use the three quarter inch for almost everything. If we're doing tomatoes, you know, or sunflowers, larger seeds, I'll use the two inch. I no longer use the large one, which what's the large one, four inch or six inch. I no longer use that at all. When I, when I upsize tomatoes from two inch, what I do now is just make the soil mix super wet and then grab a handful and like pack it around the two inch into a kind of a loose, you know, rough ball. I use that instead of the really large block. Um, I just find that it doesn't hold together as well. So it really needs a lot of hand pressure anyway. But the three quarter inch and two inch are in pretty heavy rotation. Interesting, cool. Uh, do you have a favorite recipe you like to eat or cook from the garden? I do, I do. We, we have a lot oh. of squash bug pressure here. And so we've started planting winter winter squash in the summer, like say, you know, for us, June 1st, when it's really hot and the soil is like 72 degrees, we'll do winter squash in the summer. And then as those squash are maybe four or five inches long, like an immature butternut or whatever, we cut those and cut leaves and then we'll cook the leaves and the immature squash like you would, you know, zucchini or summer squash, but they're a lot hardier and a lot more resistant to pests and they just taste great. Yeah. So we cook a lot of of winter immature winter squash and squash leaves and like are you just sauteing them in olive yeah. oil mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm, how interesting how and like that is one of the questions i think was like out of 30 questions like five different people were like what do i do about my squash bugs what do i do about squash bugs well you brush them off you know Yes. I have one lady tell me one summer, she's like, I have $67 a pound squash bugs for all the time that I have spent (laughs) ham picking the beetles off of these. Yeah. I mean, the the longer, the short answer, what I do is when I see those eggs on the squash plant, on the winter squash plant, I've already had, you know, five weeks of taking leaves and squash from them. And I I just basically take a really last aggressive harvest. And then when the plant's gone, I put something else there. But the long, you know, if you have time, yeah, go ahead and brush the eggs off. 
do you have a favorite podcast? If you listen to mine, do you listen to some others? Got a good podcast to share? I listen to yours. I listen to No-Till Market Gardener. Uh, it's a podcast that took the place of Farmer to Farmer after Chris uh, stopped producing it. So I listen to that quite a bit too. With Jesse Frost. Yeah, with Jesse. Cool. Uh, how about a favorite internet resource? So it's kind of a split between Johnny's, uh, Johnny's Seed Library where they have you know, growing information and in, in different articles and then just seed catalogs. I spend a lot of time looking through seed catalogs, trying to plan out, you know, what I'll put in where and planning maturity dates. How about a book then? Or is that kind of what you use for a book? Well, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I you know, Lisa Ziegler's books are, are awesome, but I think a book that was pretty formative was Scott Jednerchek's The Bio-Integrated Farm. He's, uh, he's down in the Southeast and, and has put a bunch of the kind of permaculture ideas into practice on a commercial farm. So that book, The Bio-Integrated Farm, has a lot of examples from his own farm on how he can combine a couple essential uh, tools or, or resources for like a larger scale operation. So for example, water retention pond where he also, you know, raises ducks, you know, or whatever. Um, and that was helpful in just expanding our imagination about how we might use the landscape to do dual purpose as we were trying to set up the farm. That, so I'll plug that one. Cool, I'll have to check that one out. Uh, did you read Andrew Mefford's The No-Till Farmer? That was really good too. Yeah, yeah, and I love seeing that. that. We're, we're totally no-till. I mean, we till when we make the bed, we have to turn the pasture into, into a, a field bed. Um, so we do that once. And then we do power harrow the top inch um, when, we, when we flip the bed. But other than that, we're, we're totally no-till. And I, I just love seeing what everybody else is doing and get a lot of ideas from Mefford and the people in that community. So do you have any business advice for listeners about how to sell flowers or get started in the industry? Yeah, I do. Awesome. I would, I absolutely do. It's, I would say do what we did, which was call florists or wholesalers, anybody who's selling flowers and ask them, what would you like to buy locally? Because it's, it's every micro market has a gap and our experience is people will just tell you, yes, we cannot get, you know, white sunflowers. We cannot get dahlia. We cannot get um, ranunculus. We cannot get lysianthus, whatever it is. And just listen to them and make a list and start planning them. And don't be afraid to try to sell 20 stems. You know, you don't need to have 10, 10 buckets to be worthwhile. A lot of florists do want 20 or 30 or 15 of a particular locally grown flower to be an accent in a bouquet. I, I just encourage people to grow really healthy flowers and, and find out what people around them are looking for and make that match. Okay. So then like, are you guys actually making a living? Like that's all you do is sell these flowers or do you have to do other things to supplement it? So right now we are, we're probably six months away from, to doing totally full-time farm. The compost business is a significant part of that, I should note. So the residential composting is a significant income stream for us. The farm, 
because we focus so much on perennials, next year will be our fourth year of perennial beds. And so that's when we're planning to be able to really switch full time to the to the flowers. We, you know, like peonies, we have a lot of peonies in the ground and we cut our first peonies this spring. So um, next year they'll be all mature plants for the first time. And that'll be, you know, so that times the beds will be a, a big change for us. So we're getting there. So where do you get, like, are you playing peony seeds or like peony start? Like where are you getting like your stuff from? And Yeah, we, we got, we got peony, you know, roots, the tubers um, from, we, we get from a wholesaler and we, you know, peonies were really popular in Missouri in the late 1800s. And so a lot of the farmsteads around uh, our house have peonies that, you know, hundred and some years old now. And, and um, I really like those old time romantic peonies. Like the, I like the singles. Um, we tend more towards things like the Duchesne de Moore, like the 19th century white with a pale yellow center more than the really thick full doubles. And so we, we get ours from wholesalers and I, we, you know, we didn't plant any last year because we've got, you know, beds, beds full now of, of three-year-old peonies. Um, we are slowly gathering peonies from our neighbors who have like really old peony bushes that they've that they want to to split and thin out, and so we're trying to transplant those in the garden. Um, that's kind of a longer term effort to be commercially viable. So interesting, cool. Well, do you have anything else you want to tell us before we get to my final question? Yeah, I want to tell people a little bit more about how Bakashi works and, and why oh, they I love should this. look at it. I think so, this is so fan like you have no idea how fantastic it is. Like you're using other people's compost, you're creating compost, you're keeping food out of our, you know, waste system and just I and and helping other people be more organic. So Yeah, it's fine. So you know, we have a lot of people we we know who have a either a tumbler in the backyard or a plastic bin in the backyard or they have a, a three bin system they built. And um, a lot of them have found it pretty challenging to keep a healthy hot pile that's free of animals because you need a lot of food waste and a lot of carbon to get that pile up to temperature. Ideally, your hot pile is getting to like 135, 140 degrees, and it's staying there for at least three days to knock back, you know, pathogens and also knock back weed seeds. Like, and I'll count tomatoes, tomato seeds as a weed seed. Um, and most people just don't have the volume or I guess the mass of food waste to do that. And so really want people to look at Bakashi as an alternative because it takes place in like a four gallon closed bin in the house. And so if it takes you three weeks to fill it, that's great. It works just as well as if it takes you one week. And, and it's really, I think, opening up a great new avenue for people who don't have a huge household producing lots of waste to keep that food out of the landfill and also keep it out of like, you know, backyard nuisances. So raccoons and fox and mice. So I really encourage people to look at Bakashi. It's a very straightforward method of like fermenting food waste. It's te technically a fermentation and not a, not a um, oxidation. So it's really neat. It's really simple. And the, Bakashi, once it's finished, goes right in the garden soil or into the container soil, and it's um, 
I think it's just a super way of getting that organic matter available to soil microbes and plants at whatever scale you're on. You know, if it's five pounds a month or if it's, you know, 150 pounds a month, it's, it scales super well and the process is just the same. So I'd really encourage people take a look, think if it works for them, think what they can do to keep that extra bit of food out of the waste stream. Okay, so I have two questions. You, is it like regular, like we don't put meat or anything in our compost. Like, can you put meat or dairy or any yeah, of that kind of stuff in you there? You absolutely can. Yeah, you can. So what happens is- I had a feeling. You inoculate the food waste with a bran that has effective microbes. And effective microbes is a term used in the Bokashi world that means a mixture of soil organisms, mainly lactobacillus. Um, lactobacillus are bacteria that work anaerobically and the first thing they do is drop the pH of that container to like a high three. So it's super acidic. And when they do that, they knock down all the other microbes in that container. Um, so anything that's on the meat, you know, anything that's on the chicken or the, any, anything that's on your spinach, um, it's like gone because it's a super acidic environment. Once that happens, they fade away and other microbes come in, like some yeasts come in and they literally ferment that food all you do is drain off the, the liquid from a spigot on the bottom of your container and either dilute it and use it in your garden or pour it down the drain. And after a couple of weeks of this fermentation, you have food waste that, I mean, it looks like food waste, it's drier and it's, but it's still recognizably food waste, but it has, it smells like a strong rye bread or, you know, stale beer. It's, it's I mean, literally just been fermented and once it's in that stage, it's not appealing to animals at all. And you bury it, bury it pretty shallow. You know, you've seen a couple inches of soil on top of it. So that soil microbes can go and, and tear through the, the bakashi and make it available as nutrients for your plants. But, you know, at that point, fox, raccoons, you know, nothing's interested in it because it's already been processed. It's been fermented by the, by the microbes. So you can do meat, you can do dairy. Um, we've had people tell us that they take some of their like invasive weeds and they chop them up and put them in there with food also rather than put them on their hot pile because they don't want to run the risk of these of this weed you know surviving the the thermophilic process um i think time will tell how long we need to bakashi you know like bindweed but yeah you can do almost anything and, and it's it's just the same process Awesome. Because I find like one of the reasons I think composting is so great is I don't want to put that food in my garbage can because then it makes my whole garbage stink and smell and just like such a like, I mean, Mike and I probably take the trash once every week to two weeks to the dump because like we mostly have recycling and we mo and then everything gets composted. And so there's very little in there, but I've always wondered about, we don't eat a lot of meat and then we have dogs. Like there's not really meat scraps around our house ever um but i wonder what people have to do and that is a huge question that people get um that i get from a lot of people what do we do about critters a lot of people i feel like don't want to have a compost pile because they are worried the critters are going to get into oh, it which i always think is for good reason i mean if you're in a suburban or urban area i don't think until you get a compost bin, you don't understand how many animals there are right around you. <laughs> so the way to find out is have a compost bin and wait until you see the wire bent back or the lid taken off 
you know, or teeth marks on it, then you'll realize just how many animals there are around you. I always think that's so weird because we live in the woods. The animals have free reign. I mean, we have a skunk constantly. Like, you can always smell skunk in the morning when you get up. And there's just, I'm always amazed at how many skunks are in Montana. But we don't seem to have a problem. They don't seem to get into the compost. But I know other people worry about that. My poor mom had a possum. Get, she had this little robin's nest she was telling me about every day and and the other night she like the dog was barking like crazy and running around the house and running and she looks out and there's the possum right in the oh, tree about yeah. and it was and i just thought i was like wow i don't remember us ever having possums when we were kids or like that ever being a thing she said it was so ugly <laughs> yeah, it was like a giant yeah. rat with a really long tail and just my, own, my only know. complaint i think possums are, are pretty sweet overall but they have a, a terrible smell so if, if they have if they den up like under your deck or you just it's like a really strong disagreeable odor that's that's really how you notice you have possums around because Overall, they don't cause many problems, but they do smell really bad. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I just didn't know. And maybe in like the suburbs and urban areas, it's a bigger problem than it is for us here. I mean, I, hear, I remember when my mom was kids, like that's how I learned. They had the same kind of compost pile that we have right here when we were kids. I don't know what's changed where she is. I know there's like 20,000 zillion more rabbits. <laughs> yeah well, this rabbits year, when this we were kids a rabbit it's unbelievable is it uh, yeah I, we hear a lot of people say uh we'd like to try bakashi because raccoons have spread our food waste across our backyard right they got in the bin and pried it open and then just ran amok and that's a pretty common story uh i think in most suburban areas so uh-huh. interesting okay and then my other question is like can you keep this thing in your garage? Would it freeze in the winter if you, you keep it under your sink in the kitchen? Yeah, I keep it on the counter. Uh, what it's a oh, sealed container. Oh, it's that small. I thought oh, you said it's... it was like four gallons. Yeah, so it's like a yeah, but it's four gallons, so it's a little bit shorter than a five gallon paint. Which I bucket. guess yeah. What's a five gallon bucket? What am I yeah. thinking? I'm picturing like this giant barrel. No, no, no. Yeah, oh. we we make bakashi in in very large barrels, either in fifty gallon drums or ninety six gallon yeah that's what i'm thinking no no for the home use um yeah it's four gallons and it's it's uh it's attractive for what it worth um you you can keep it uh i would say don't let it freeze solid um but it can get hot it can get cold uh but most people just have it in their kitchen in the corner and then they and what is like the kit cost the uh well pricing's on the website i I hate to go prices but basically uh if you include shipping everything the kits uh you know, the, the container itself, which is sealed, and then we provide a couple of pounds of the brand that actually kicks off the process. Then it has the little tools to help pack your food waste down, and it has a little cup to drain the leachate and um, our logo on it. So um, if you just go to our website, blhfarm.com, and check out the shop, uh, it's all it's all available there. Um, I, hate, I don't want to get the price wrong, because we're offering shipping and stuff now, too. Okay, cool. Uh I mean, I was just kind of like, is it like $100 or no, 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 $25 no. or no, it, it's, $200? It's, you know, like, you know. If you, including shipping, if you get, you know, to just get two, so you have one that's working and one that's, you know, you're adding food to. Um, including shipping and bringing everything, I think you're probably $80, you know, or less. Cool. That's just what yeah. I was thinking, right? About $75. So that's yeah. perfect. All right. So are we ready for my final question? 
I guess so. I could talk about gardening all day long, but yeah, I think so. Okay. Matt, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? I, I am very concerned about industrial herbicide use in agriculture, and I, I'm extremely concerned about the new wave of herbicides and insecticides that's being used on you know 90 million acres of row crop fields i would like people to really be vocal with their uh food companies with general mills with you know whoever's making their cereal and bread telling them that they strongly object to the use of things like dicamba you know uh, desiccants like glyphosate in oats and wheat and and um, through the food chain i'm I'm really disturbed by both the volume of the chemicals being applied and also the, the toxicity of these. So I ask people really take a look at what's happening in the food supply chain. It's way beyond Roundup. Um, look at Dicamba, look at the, the volume being used and, and tell their companies, we would like to see support for you know, herbicide-free grains and, and, um, and food products. Awesome. Well, uh, we told, well, let's tell people your website again. Yeah, we're blhfarm.com and we're on Instagram and Facebook too. We try to keep uh, pretty current on what's happening on the farm. So we put blog posts up and have photos of what we're doing. <clears throat> so check us out. And I'll also say we answer anybody's questions about composting. It doesn't matter if you're a customer or not. We just, you know, it's really fun to do. So anybody who has a problem or a question or they want to try something new feel free drop us a line either through the website there's like a contact us or just email me i'm you know matt at blhfarm.com you know we're, we've been doing this for a long time and and really want people to keep their food waste out of the landfill so we'll answer anybody's questions about basically any compost process if we can do you want to tell people why it's important to keep their food waste i mean i know and we talk about it a lot <laughs> but just like out of the landfill yeah, well, I mean, you, first of all, you're just robbing us of all that organic matter that could be used to feed the soil, uh, but you're also producing a very heavy wet waste stream that has to be hauled by vehicles that burn gas and then decomposing, you know, producing a variety of kind of gross and unpleasant and, and, uh, and problematic substances in the landfill uh, wrapped in plastic while they are. So, you know, if, Number one thing you can do to get a healthy garden is get organic matter in the soil. How do you do that? Keep your land landfill free of your food waste. You know, get it in there in, in whatever form, bakashi or aerobic compost or worm castings, whatever it is. Um, it's something you can do. It's absolutely within your control to do it, whether you're in, in an apartment, you've got containers on the porch or you're in a suburban house. So, I mean, really want to see people do that and, and see how much we can cut down from our, uh, our landfill and our food waste. Well, that couldn't have been more perfect. All right. So if we were going to make a 60-second pitch for my show for Bukashi composting, what would that sound like? 60 seconds. Well, I think Bukashi composting really fills a, a huge gap in the American composting story. Uh, a lot of households who don't have the ability to do 
great hot piles can keep their food waste in the soil with the Bokashi method. And I think that accessibility is a story that really needs to be told. And our website is? BLHfarm.com. Uh, okay, well, cool. Because I might throw that little promo in between some episodes, like as a sponsor sort of space, just to get people doing that. Awesome. That's important. Matt, thank you so much for booking this call and being here today and sharing just everything you guys are doing and for saving our planet. And and I hope your flower sales just are awesome. And um, if you ever want to come back and let us know what's up, since you love to talk gardening, I'm always looking for gas. So just feel free to book another call. Thanks, Jackie. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, next time we'll talk flower specific or herb specific cool. or something like that. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Thank right, you. Thanks, you have Jackie. a great day. You too. Hey, listeners. Are you taking good notes of what's going on in your garden? Are you recording what's working well? Are you recording all the things that you want to do differently next year? I guarantee you, if you wait to the fall, if you think you are never going to forget that you want to plant more carrots or you want to put the arugula in a different bed or you want to get a different type of beet or you found the perfect seeds, if you think you're going to remember that in January, I guarantee you, you are not going to remember it. And the best thing you can do, and this is not just me saying this, this is guests have been on my show, but I know Mike and I. This is the time to be journaling. And hey, if you want to support the Organic Gardener podcast while you're doing it, did you know that I made a beautiful blank journal? It's got a photo of a butterfly on the lilacs at our house that I took. And it's got, I think, 135 pages that are either lined or blank that you can sketch in. So if you want to support us, and it's super cheap. It's like $5.95, I think, on Amazon. So um, if you want to support the show, but most of all, if you want to have good records for your garden, if you want a place where you can take notes, um, of what's going on now, what's working well, what didn't work, what don't you want to forget come February when you're filling out your order for next year, now is the time to do it. Whether it's, I want to get some Agribond cloth. I want to make sure I have row cover. I want to make sure that I have, um, you know, I just did this awesome interview with, um, this guy who's following Lisa Ziegler's cool flowers. Um, he's in the Southeast, um, but it, you know, he's planting perennial seeds now because they are going to stuff their beds with cool season annuals and perennials for the fall. Um, so that in September they're coming, I mean, in the spring, they've already got a good start and everything else. And they can be one of the first flower farmers in the area to have flowers, a garden journal to record all of your hard work and your notes and what's working and what you don't want to forget for next year. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.